You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Bella Chow is malware from Iran's IRGC, while Ping Pol is malware used by the Chinese government-affiliated Taurus Group. Ransomware continues to be a pervasive international threat. An overview of hacktivism. Our guest is CyberMind's founder, Peter Coronius, discussing the importance of mental health in cybersecurity. Johannes Ulrich shares insights from his RSAC panel discussions. And Ukraine continues to collect evidence of Russian war crimes. From the RSA conference in San Francisco, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, April 26, 2023. Iran's APT Charming Kitten, sponsored by Tehran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, has been seen using a new strain of malware known as Bella Chow. Bitdefender reported this morning. The group, known also by many names, including Mint Sandstorm, Phosphorus, APT35, and APT42, uses this individually tailored dropper to deliver payloads from their command and control server. Bitdefender said that each sample collected was tied up to a specific victim and included hard-coded information such as company name, specially crafted subdomains, or associated public IP address. The malware has been seen in use against victims in the U.S. and Europe, but also against targets in Turkey and India. The exact point of infection is unknown, but researchers conjecture a Microsoft Exchange exploit chain software vulnerability or something similar. The researchers suspect the Italian moniker for this Iranian native malware, Bella Chow, may be a reference to a folk song of the same name about resistance fighters. Researchers at Palo Alto's Unit 42 discovered a new malware strain they're calling Ping Pull. It's used by Taras, a cyber espionage group attributed to China. Ping Pull targets Linux machines and has been used in conjunction with the SWORD 2033 backdoor. 
Unit 42 explained that although Taras has been historically active against telecommunications companies in Asia, Europe, and Africa, recently researchers have noticed increased activity spreading to financial institutions and government entities. BitSight reported today that they discovered a new high-severity exploit for the service location protocol, stating SLP is a protocol that was created in 1997 through RFC 2165 to provide a dynamic configuration mechanism for applications in local area networks. The exploit, dubbed CVE 2023-29552, allows attackers to launch DDoS attacks against open SLP instances. CISA explains, the service location protocol allows an unauthenticated remote attacker to register arbitrary services. This could allow an attacker to use spoofed UDP traffic to conduct a denial-of-service attack with a significant amplification factor. BitSight explained, attackers exploiting this vulnerability could leverage vulnerable instances to launch massive denial-of-service amplification attacks with a factor as high as 2,200 times potentially making it one of the largest amplification attacks ever reported. BitSight urges businesses to disable SLP on devices connected to the open Internet, and if that's not possible, then firewalls should be configured to filter traffic on UDP and TCP port 427. This will prevent external attackers from accessing the SLP service. The Five Eyes Alliance is seeing a rising threat from ransomware, InfoSecurity Magazine reports. Felicity Oswald, the United Kingdom's National Cybersecurity Center's COO, noted at the RSA conference that ransomware continues to be pervasive in the UK, as very little skill is required to implement the malware. Rita Erfurt, Threat Intelligence Senior Executive at the Australian Cybersecurity Center, said... Ransomware is the most destructive form of cybercrime facing Australia. CDO Trends reports that a study from Rubric on data security says that 72% of organizations have actually paid hackers using ransomware, yet only 16% saw success in data retrieval using attacker-supplied tools. National representatives in attendance from the UK, Australia, the US, and Canada noted that their national cybersecurity strategies are currently in the works or have recently been published. InfoSecurity magazine notes that Canada and Australia's cyber strategies are still in development and under review. The UK saw the release of its national strategy in December of last year, and the US finalized theirs last month. Radware issued a report this morning offering an overview of the current state of hacktivism, Much of the genuine politically motivated actions have pursued familiar targets. Israel, for example, comes in at number one among the countries targeted, but the emergence of hacktivist organizations serving as cyber auxiliaries to governments, especially the Russian government, is a noteworthy development. The Russian hacktivist organizations include Killnet, No Name 05716, which wants everyone to understand that they're not working for Killnet, and the Passion Group, which began its career as a Killnet affiliate, but which has recently shown signs of morphing into a profit-driven criminal gang with an advocacy side hustle. Radware's conclusion sums up the record the Russian hacktivists have compiled, stating, Pro-Russian hacktivists have been actively attacking anyone who supports Ukraine or goes against Russia for over a year now. 
Kilnet has been dedicated to its cause and has had the time to build experience and increase its circle of influence across affiliate pro-Russian hacktivist groups. We've seen groups like No Name 05716 successfully exploring crowdsourced botnets, with financial incentives and Passion Group providing DDoS-as-a-service attacks to like-minded groups. While No Name 05716 is the major force to be reckoned with in terms of DDoS attacks, Killnet's influence, reach, and tactics are growing and changing, and they're not showing signs of slowing down or retiring soon. Killnet, by the way, has been promising a big announcement this evening at 10 p.m. Moscow time. We'll be keeping our eyes out for it. And finally, Ukraine is collecting evidence of alleged Russian war crimes with a view toward both prosecuting those responsible, should they become available for prosecution, or at least toward ensuring the preservation of the historical record and assuring that the history is told accurately. In this effort, they're receiving international assistance, some of it from the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. These investigations are groundbreaking in that so much of the relevant evidence is digital, CyberScoop reports. Digital forensics will be important not only for investigating cyber attacks against civilian infrastructure, but also for geolocation of perpetrators in the vicinity of their crimes. Devices can put their owners at the scene, and that holds for war crime investigations as well as for ordinary criminal cases. We would add two other potential spheres of investigation, collection of communications authorizing and organizing atrocities, and collection of communications that could amount to incitement. There's been no shortage of incitement to genocide. Coming up after the break, our guest is CyberMind's founder, Peter Koronius, discussing the importance of mental health in cybersecurity. Johannes Ulrich from the Sands Technology Institute shares insights from his RSAC panel discussions. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. 
This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Peter Caronius is the founder of CyberMinds, which has gotten a start in Australia addressing the importance of mental health in cybersecurity. He stopped by to visit with us here at the RSA conference to celebrate their launch here in the U.S. We launched CyberMinds in the U.S. yesterday morning. Uh, first thing, really, and it was um, really our extension of the CyberMinds program into the U.S. for the first time. So very excited. We had some great representation um, the director, Jen Easterly, was kind enough to give us some words of support. She wasn't able to attend in person, but she sent a beautiful video. And I think what we're realising and what we're seeing is that the problems that we encountered in Australia in the last few years, I think, are fairly universal around burnout in cyber teams. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it was really great to just see the warm reception we got and the recognition for the issues that we're attempting to address. Yeah. Well, let, let's clarify that. What is the mission of CyberMinds? Well, it's pretty simple, really. I mean, I've got a long background in cybersecurity, but I've also had a very long background and exposure to neuroscience and personal development. And in a way, I was keeping them separate. I was using the personal development strategies in my own career when I was heading the Internet Industry Association in Australia. It was sort of my secret weapon of how I kept... Mm. on game and could switch off when I needed to. But I guess during the pandemic, I was starting to see more and more burnout in teams, cyber teams and amongst my peers. And finally, one day the penny dropped and I thought, look, here's the opportunity to integrate these two passions of the personal development, you know, relaxation, um, optimization of, of the mind uh, and bringing it into cybersecurity in the first time, for the first time. And, and that's really the mission now is to go in with tangible on-the-ground support now, more than just talking about it, going in and actually delivering a very powerful protocol, which we can talk about, but it's had extensive use in the military in mm. the US and in Australia. So we know it works. There's plenty of science that supports its effectiveness. And I think our contribution as CyberMinds is to just work with organisations and to start bringing teams back from burnout and back into the sort of zone where we want them to be. What is your sense in terms of um, the problem itself, the, the problem of burnout within cybersecurity? To what degree is it the nature of the job? Is it the nature of the people who are attracted to that kind of job or a spectrum in between? I think it's a combination of factors. Um, one thing I will say is that we've done a fairly deep analysis now of the drivers of burnout in cyber. And there really is, in my mind, something particular and unique about working in cybersecurity hmm. that means that it stands apart from other professions and not to take away from the stresses that they, they encounter and many people have encountered during COVID particularly. But with cybersecurity, we've identified at least 15 factors that all in combination uh, come to bear on teams and are driving this burnout. And we really think that there isn't very much to compare outside of cybersecurity. So 
Um, you know, I think we're familiar with what some of those factors will be. It's the relentless nature of the attack environment. Mm -hmm. It's the invisibility of success, so you don't really know when you're winning. And right, we, we did all these things, congratulations, nothing happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's very hard, and so we, that plays into a lack of recognition for the value of the work that our cyber peers are doing. Mm. In addition, on top of that, you've got the high visibility of failure, Mm. And, and particularly, I would say, the downstream consequential effects of a, of a single failure, potentially affecting, as we've seen in Australia and elsewhere, tens of millions of people. And so, you know, that plus another 12 or so factors start to create a very unique environment that, quite frankly, our brains are not optimised for. And the result of that is we start to see cyber professionals questioning their own effectiveness in the job. Mm. They start to doubt their own efficacy. Mm -hmm. And that of one of the, of the three metrics that uh, predict resignation intent as, as burnout metrics, that's the one that is actually in our research outpolling that even of frontline healthcare workers. Mm. So just to sort of condense that point, what, we've, what our research is showing is that on that one metric that predicts the intention to resign, cyber people are polling worse than even the frontline healthcare workers. And that should be a concern for all of us for obvious reasons. Let's talk about the framework itself then. How are you all approaching this problem? So uh, I mentioned the IRS protocol. It stands for Integrative Restoration. It was developed in California actually by Dr. Richard Miller and he's founded the IRS Institute. So he's really the true mental health pioneer in this space. He's a clinical psychologist and they had taken the protocol into the US military in 2004, actually, uh, and they were using it to help treat PTSD in returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. Hmm. And they found pretty quickly that they were getting quite remarkable results. Also, it was being used very effectively to address anxiety, depression, insomnia, a lot of even pain management, but a lot of the things that we see manifesting within cyber teams now, and particularly... I would say uh, the most critically affected units would be around the SOC analysts. Right. And this constancy of, you know, the incoming and they're having to uh, sort through false positives and, and that sort of kicks the brain into a hypervigilant state, which over time I think is really not sustainable. So the protocol has had this extensive application in the military and, we, and it was officially endorsed actually by the Army Surgeon General in 2010 as a tier one complementary therapy. So I looked at this and I thought, you know, there, is a, there are a lot of similarities between military and cybersecurity in terms of the defensive posture that you have to take and, and really the toll that it takes on the individuals. And so I approached the Iris Institute. I'd done the training myself as a facilitator and I started piloting it. I was seeing great results in Australia and I thought, well, the general population, because these measures we use have got general population norms that are already established, but then we can go in and look at how you're comparing with other professional groups, as I said, the frontline healthcare workers or teachers or other professions, but more importantly, we can also start to build a picture of where your organisation sits in relation to other organisations within cybersecurity. And what we hear from the people that we're running our programs is that they start to make better decisions because they're not now coming out of their flight and fight you know, limbic system in the brain, but they're actually 
more able to come back into a present-centred state mm. where they're accessing where they need to access the prefrontal cortex and where all the, you know, the good decision-making occurs and we're moving them back into that, to that zone. And also we give them the ability to switch off when they go home. The, the protocol can be used before sleep or if you wake up in the middle of the night, which I'm sure many people can relate to. Sure, yeah. The mind is racing. And it's because you've carried a lot of subconscious stuff into, this, into sleep and it wants to break through and be heard. And as that happens, you actually start to get development in other parts of the brain that are involved with emotional regulation, uh, seeing things in perspective. Even empathy starts to build and you become... You know, the team morale improves because everyone's feeling a little bit more restored emotionally. So, yeah, it's very powerful, very interesting how it works. That's Peter Coronius from Cyberminds. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, and he is also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, great to see you. Great to see you actually in person. I'm it, standing across from you here. It's all different. It's so decadent, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of the great things about this conference is you get to see so many people face-to-face yeah. who you only get to see remotely uh, along the way. Well, uh, speaking of the conference, you are presenting here this year, or actually you did present uh, here this year. Tell us about uh, your, your your program. Yeah, so uh, I'm part of the SANS panel again. Uh, I think we're doing this now for 10 plus years. We were talking about this earlier, kind of hard to remember when it all started. Right. But uh, the idea is always that we talk about emerging threats, but he thinks that uh, our already kind of an issue, but are probably going to be of more concern in the next year or so. So that's uh, what is of the theme of this. And we narrowed it down to the top five of these threats. Okay. Can we go through some of them together? Yeah. Um, so uh, we have on the panel Heather Mihalik, uh, we have uh, Katie, and we have uh, Stephen Sims, and uh, Ed Scott is sort of managing it all. And uh, Katie talked about, uh, for example, these search engine optimization sets more and more happening now, in particular with Google, where essentially attackers are just buying ads for their malware, which is an amazing kind of concept right. that it works. Uh, but um, yeah, it does work, and uh, they're able to uh, really sort of trick people into basically downloading malware instead of the legitimate software they looked for. So this is a situation where, let's say I was looking for the latest copy of Zoom or something like that, and I do a search in Google, and the first ad that would pop up would pretend to be from Zoom, but would actually have malware embedded in it? Correct, and it's going to a page that looks like Zoom, so it's really hard for anybody, really, to figure out uh, what they're downloading. So that's a, that's a challenge here, and of course, now Google hasn't really been super responsive uh, yeah. to, to all of this. That's yeah. a troubling aspect of this, that Google yeah. hasn't been speedier in getting on yeah. top of this. Yeah. I feel like this virus total thing there here that may help. <laughs> <laughs> Let's continue down the list. What are some of the other things you guys uh, are looking at? And then, of course, ChatGPT is a big thing. Right. Um, Stephen Sims and Heather uh, will sort of talk a little bit about this. Stephen, a little bit about the technical aspects, and you know, how do you basically social engineer chat GPT into writing malware for you. Right. And what some of the tricks are that people have figured out uh, in 
how to sort of convince uh, ChatGPT to do that. They put some controls in here. They, you know, if you just outright ask it to write malware, it usually doesn't work. But uh, then you can, like, for example, ask it, hey, let's pretend you're writing a movie script. How would you in that movie? <laughs> right, <laughs> so right, right. so uh, fairly simple things. Now, Heather is going more into sort of the personal aspect of this. Hmm. And she has some fairly troubling, at least to me, kind of conversation with ChatGPT and her son, hmm. where she used ChatGPT to write texts to send to her son that, are supposed to pretend that she's an, a teenage girl. And so, um, oh, interesting. And uh, actually, I think she said her son mentioned one of those texts was like one of the best he ever received from her with <laughs> all the emojis <laughs> and such. Oh, oh interesting. <laughs> so, uh, Chat really got the tone pretty pretty right here. Of, uh, interesting. Of this, yeah. Well, I mean, perhaps there's an upside where we can have cross-generational you know, communications, have it serve as a translation layer between us and our kids. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now learn how to talk with yeah. your kid. Uh, hey, any, whatever it takes, right? As the, it takes. as the parent of a teenage boy, I, I welcome anything that helps us uh, see eye to eye. What else are you guys looking at? And uh, then uh, I'll be talking about attacks against developers. Mm. This is something that we have seen more and more of. And, you know, lately, like, for example, this last pass issue where a system, a home system of a developer was compromised, essentially led to the compromise of the entire organization, more or less. Uh, we also had this again with uh, 3CX, mm -hmm. where that trading software that was downloaded was then used to compromise the organization. So where uh, developers are really sort of taking a lot of the brunt kind of of these attacks because they are the supply chain. So when we talk about supply chain attacks and we talk about uh, malicious libraries, well, how did that library become malicious? Uh, a developer sort of was involved at one point, whether that developer willingly collaborated or whether someone made the developer collaborate by installing malware on their system, uh, that's really sort of the big problem here. Yeah. So uh, RSA Conference does a great job of, of putting these panels uh, online for folks to view afterwards. Uh, will this be included in that? Are you being videotaped or recorded? Yeah, definitely being recorded. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure whether it will be online like for free or whether it will be uh, online for people who actually paid and attended a conference. Usually, at least like after a few months or so, they make it uh, like freely available online. Yeah, yeah. Any other things uh, from the conference that... Uh, that have drawn your attention here before we wrap up? Well, it's big as ever before. Like last year, I think it was a little bit, felt like a trial run kind of. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, but now it's sort of back to normal and it's big. Uh, lots of vendors, lots of noise also on the floor. That's what I noticed. It felt quieter last time. I th yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. So back to normal for, for better or yep. for worse, yep. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Johannes Elric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. 
Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can write us an email at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Fittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.